Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Global Autism Conference. Thank you to our speakers and our sponsors, and thank you all for listening in today. We truly appreciate you. At this time, I welcome our Master of Ceremonies, Dr. Lakeisha James. She's the CEO and founder of Designer Events by Lakeisha. Welcome, Dr. James. Thank you, Gigi. Thank you so much. I, it is always a pleasure to be on your platform. And thank you to all the speakers that will bar, be partaking on this platform today. So thank you, Regaline Sabat, on behalf of Life Service Center of America, LLC. And Regaline Sabat, we welcome you to the Global Autism Conference. The Global Autism Conference will give you insights on autism. This is a topic that is not discussed enough. Our speakers will bring awareness to autism. If you know someone that is experiencing this, this event is for you. If you know someone that wants to learn about this event, this event is for them. I would like to introduce to you our host, Regaline Sabat. She is a motivational keynote speaker, five-time best-selling author, life coach, first-generation Haitian American, the host of Walk With Me podcast on JRQ TV, financial expert and CEO and founder of Life Service Center of America, LLC, and which is endorsed by Les Brown. Welcome, Gigi. Thank you. Now, are you guys ready? So we're gonna introduce our keynote speaker, Dr. Sandra Rizzotti. Rizzotti, forgive me. She is a mother of two amazing teens that possess a passion for advocacy, safety, and quality education for healthcare workers. In August, 2019, Dr. Rizzotti successfully completed her Doctor of Nursing practice with her published project, Preventing Patient on Nurse Violence Through Education, created 501c3 nonprofit Nurses Against Violence Unites Incorporated, which sparked an international movement to support frontline healthcare workers and end healthcare violence. The mission of Nurses Against Violence Unite Incorporated is to bring awareness to the issues, fill the gaps of education, empower all while eliminating violence in healthcare. Among many accomplishments, Dr. Rizzotti is the number one best-selling author, was invited to be on the Doctor's TV talk show, So Exciting, Nurses Under Attack, Presenting, Preventing Psychological and Physical Abuse of Frontline Healthcare Workers for the American Psychological Academy Conference, plus the American Academy of Nurse Attorneys, CNA and the Nurses Services Organization, among many organizations, new features and articles. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our keynote speaker, Dr. Sandra Rizzotti. Welcome. Thank you for having me. This is a, it's a wonderful to be here. Um, it's, it's exciting because now autism is now on the front line. So many things that have been going on in society where mental health is now becoming more on the front end instead of being hidden by a mask. As we're seeing with these beautiful people that you're going to see tonight, um, we are out from underneath of our mask. We are, we are done from hiding. Autism is often found to be presented in children as young as like three years old with a failure to start talking right away. Um, it's very, various different symptoms. Um, it can go from high end to Asperger's to the lower functioning where you have, um, you know, um, mutism that can happen. Um, there's different forms of, of Asperger, of autism, which are three different levels. There's, um, we have the Asperger's, we have the, the one that um, is the muted one, and we also have the more, um, you know, higher end autism. I don't have my, my, my cheat sheet with me, but it is extremely important that we um, pay attention to 
those children that are having these learning difficulties because they might have this Asperger's and it can also look as if they're having anxiety um, as well as also depression in school. Um, these kids are often considered to be different. Um, they might look different, they might act different, and they might have what we call, as I refer to as a mask that people, they try to pretend like they're something that they're not. Um, bullying is very important and we need to be focusing on that because autism can start affecting a child and can be passed down from, from the mother and the father. So we have to, we have to have a, um, a, a look and see of um, pay attention to what is actually going on with our children. So um, bullying is, is one of the biggest side effects you know, when people don't understand something, they automatically go after something they don't understand. And we're seeing that a lot in society. So with that being said, I wanted to introduce, um, we have a, we have speakers that are coming on a little bit. We are having a little bit, um, you know, I just wanted to make sure and clarify exactly, you know, when we have these issues with the, the bullying and everything, it, it tends to ball up into where we are today as adults. And with we're seeing in society is that there's a lot of people that, again, just like when they were younger, didn't understand the, the differences of, you know, the personalities. And because you don't see somebody's hand on top of their head growing out of their skull, they don't, you don't see it right away. So therefore people, if you don't see it, if you can't calculate it with a lab, you can't calculate it with anything um, that is quantifiable on paper, then you're going to automatically think that that person is just like you. And that is absolutely false. We have very many, we have a large amount of people that you're going to be meeting tonight that are um, excelling in their fields. And it's because of what we have the superpower and the superpower is something that not so many people, other people have. So Ms. Gigi. Thank you, Dr. Sandra Rizaldi. Thank you so much, Dr. Sandra. It's always a pleasure to be on a platform with you. We've been on a couple of platforms. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Our next speaker is Brandy Shampoo. Did I pronounce that correctly, Brandy? Shampoo, yes. Okay, great. Having survived homelessness, domestic abuse, pregnancy-induced heart failure, and devastated natural disasters, Brandy knows how to rise from the ashes. I love that. She has not only survived, but is now living her best expression. Brandy is a single mother of three children, including one with special needs. She is an author, speaker, and curriculum developer. She is also the co-founder of Exploring Expression, a company that provides products, services, and publishing in support of a learning lifestyle. Through Exploring's procession, Expression, Brandy helps parents and educators become the best expression of themselves so they can make fun learning fun, easy and natural, not just for children, but for themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Brandy Shampoo. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, so what I'm going to talk about today, my son Joshua has autism and he is 18. So over the last year, couple of years, really, we've been navigating what does it look like once your autistic child starts to become an adult? What does that mean for them? What does that mean for you? Um, we've had to go through the journey of getting social security and how do you transition from this is my child with autism 
to this is my adult adult child with autism. So there's a couple of things I really wanted to bring up that I've learned through our journey and um, have led us or have led me to develop some of the things that we now have um, have with our company. One of the first things was my son Joshua, who's 18, is six feet tall, 300 pounds. He is a giant man of a person on the outside. And as your autistic um, child begins that journey into adulthood, they may look adult, and so people may treat them adult, but a lot of times what happens is they don't really understand what that means. And so we've been working for the last couple of years with Joshua and will continue to work for the next couple of years on adulting as a learned trait. Because a lot of times what happens is people assume, you know, not just for autistic children, but for every child that about 17 to 20, they just are adults now and they know what that means and they know how to get along in an adult world. So we do things like every once in a while, I take Joshua and I help him plan his own menu for the week. And then he goes to the store and I give him money. And one of the best things I ever did for him is he has a green light card. I don't know um, if any of you are familiar with what those green lights are. There's several types of cards like that do is it allows them to have their own money that they control that I control. So it's his own debit card. He goes and he spends it. When we do his meal planning, I then put that amount of money on his card and he goes to the store and he shops off of his list. And then we see, did that last you a week? How long did that really last you? Joshua has a tendency to get up in the middle of the night and just eat everything. And so the first time we did this experiment, he ate his entire week's worth of food in two days. And then we had a chance to talk about some of those things that now, what does that mean? If you were living in, on your own, what would that mean for you? So it's really important as your, as your autistic teen now becomes your autistic adult to really take baby steps. I know um, my daughter, Samantha, who's now almost 22, she didn't need to go that slowly. You know, I was able to say, you know, you have a job, you know, you're 22, now go start doing it. And she picked it up. Um, one of the other things we really run into as, as my autistic teenager now becomes an adult is that mentally and emotionally and maturity, he's still about 12 years old with the things that he comprehends. And so we really, I really have to take moments and you really have to take moments with your child and talk to them. You know, I know you love going out and playing with your friends, but if your friends are 12, you can't, you know, as an 18-year-old guy, you can't just go out and play and go on, you know, go on sleepovers and do these sorts of things because you're now 18. And so we really had to have, it's really important to have that open dialogue, um, especially with your higher functioning autistic, autistic children, um, about what's appropriate. And I know... Um, you had talked a moment ago about really having to explain things in black and white. And sometimes I have to be brutally blunt because Joshua isn't going to understand subtleties. He's not going to understand, you know, maybe do you think that's the best idea? 
because he always thinks it's the best idea because he thought of it. Of course, it's the best idea. And so you have to not be afraid to have the uncomfortable conversations. And, you know, unfortunately with my daughter, I could kind of skim over, you know, I could kind of skim over the birds and the bees talk. So I could kind of skim over the fact that, you know, hey, you're a teenager now, you need to shower every day. Um, with my son, I could not do that. I had to, you know, I had to sometimes gently hurt his feelings in order to protect him from an adult world that he didn't yet understand. The other big thing I wanted to talk about was record keeping. Um, one of the best, best things I ever did, you know, Joshua's been in and out of residential placement. Um, he's, we've done homeschool. He's done special ed schools. He did public school for a brief moment that didn't work out well. And now as we're going on and looking at post high school opportunities, one of the best things I ever did was keep meticulous record keeping. I have a Word document where, I guess you could do an Excel, but I did in Word, where I have medication changes. I have every diagnosis because, um, you know, they say no two autistic children are the same. Well, one thing that I've seen a lot, I've seen a lot more often than not, is that before they get to autism, they've gone through numerous other diagnoses. And along with autism, they have three or four or five other diagnoses. And it's important to keep those, you know, keep those there and keep those, keep track of those things. When was that diagnosed? When was it replaced with something else? The same thing with medication, you know, as we've, we've moved a couple of times and doctors leave and new doctors come and he'll go to a residential treatment and they have doctors and it seems every time we go to residential, they just want to take them off everything and put completely new things on. Well, having those records, I'm able to say, well, wait a minute, we did that medication already and we did that medication. And then when it came time, we got approved for social security the first time around, which is very difficult to do. And I sincerely believe that one reason as an adult, um, we didn't, you can't apply as an adult, until two months before your 18th birthday. So his birthday was in November. So we began to apply in, um, his birthday's in December. We began to apply in early November, we started to apply. And what I was able to do is send them this document that said, hey, here is proof that we've, here's proof of the job that he tried to get that he only lasted three days at. Here's proof of this, you know, training we try to do that wasn't really successful. And because we had all of those records, we didn't have to jump through as many hoops as, um, as a lot of people have to jump through. So now that he's 18 and we're starting to work on um, what's next, you know, he's a senior in high school, we're beginning to look at things like um, post post high school things, career explorations. And I'm taking, we've gone through the adulting, his adulting curriculum that we did in his home school. And now we're going through career by career. Do you wanna to go to college? Do you wanna to go to trade school? Are you gonna live at home? Do you wanna look for an assisted living situation that maybe isn't at home? And so my biggest takeaway, if I had one takeaway that I wanna leave you with is Start thinking about those things early. 
Don't wait till your child is 18, 17. Start looking at those things when they turn 15. Start looking at, you know, is my child going to drive at 16? For Joshua, when he turned 15 and a half and all his um, people in his class were getting licenses, he was like, let's go. Let's go drive a car. Um, and he's now 18. And we've taught him how to drive a mule. We've taken him like a um, riding lawnmower. We've taken him out a few times. But I know as his mother, he's not there yet. And so what we've been able to do is have those open conversations that I'd say, you know, these are the eight steps that you need to do. Once you get to those eight, that eighth step, we'll take the driver's test. But before you get there, I need to be able to see you in this situation and see you in this situation. And let's make sure that you're ready. So, and that's what I have. Thank you. Thank you, Brandy. Thank you so much, Brenda, for sharing your story. Our next speaker is Tracy Smith, conscious, driven, living coach, executive, live purposely, feel passionately, and align authentically to your purpose with intention. I love that. She is also a leader, educator, writer, activist, consumer of research initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Tracy Smith. Hi, everyone. Brandy, your story just touched me so deeply, and I just feel so much compassion for you. And I love how you're able to give the emotional side of it, talking about the importance of communication and open lines. You also gave some really practical advice, and I think that's going to be really helpful for people. It's a good segue into what I wanted to talk about, which is compassion. As a aunt and stepsister and niece of people with autism, also a teacher of students with autism, I have had the privilege of working with many individuals who are in different parts of the journey of learning about autism. In my first teaching job, I taught preschool students with autism. And because of the low ratio, I was able to um, it was four students with an assistant and me, I was able to form really strong relationships with the family. One of the things that I really understood was that listening without asking questions, without judgment, without you know thinking about other things, but just focusing and active listening really helps anyone that is just finding out that their child has autism it just gives them a platform to be able to process their feelings. Processing feelings with families was such a privilege for me. And I learned so much about what to do and what not to do. So when my nephew was diagnosed with autism and my nephew is, you know, he's on the spectrum um, and he's pretty severe, he's nonverbal and he's almost 18. It really gave me a lot of tools to be able to help my sister. One of the things that I think that we're conditioned to do as a society is to say memes like everything happens for a reason and God has a plan and God only gives strong people these burdens. Well, my thing is that it's not compassionate to sum up somebody else's journey in a meme and that if they want to arrive at the fact that this is a gift from God that everything happens for a reason. 
um, if they want to arrive at these conclusions, allow others the privilege of having the journey of self-discovery and discovering for themselves the gift in all of this. When you just hear the news that your child has autism, especially not knowing what services are out there, what supports are out there, it could be very overwhelming. And so people don't always have hope in the beginning. Conferences like this really help others being able to have hope because we're gonna hear about different supports and services and other people's journeys on how they processed all of this. But I just wanna caution people that it's not always compassionate to sum something up in a meme when someone's just getting news or they're in the process of trying to digest what this journey is gonna look like for them. Another thing that I discovered is a lot of people, and I have been guilty of this, and now I have caught myself and really try to be mindful not to do this, is competitive suffering. So if someone says, my child just got diagnosed with autism, and then it's like, oh, I know what you're going through. My, you know, I have to take care of my mom and she has cancer. It's not about competitive suffering. It's not about telling someone else even if your child has autism, it's about giving them the space and the ability to be able to process their feelings. That's what friendship is. And I can tell you that just holding space for my sister, um, having to deal with some real cruelties, and I'm not gonna get into that rabbit hole of all the cruelties that my sister has experienced, but one of the things that was really disappointing is that one of her best friends, that she was the maid of honor in her wedding, um, had twin boys. And I think it was my nephew's like seventh birthday. And the boys started saying um, my nephew's name, Timmy, Timmy's ugly and stupid and horrible. And they started saying all of this stuff and the mother didn't do anything to correct them. And when my sister confronted her later, she said, oh, I mean, they didn't mean anything by it. And she got really defensive. Um, that friendship has now fallen away because of the obvious, but my sister was hysterical for weeks over this because one of her best friends just didn't have any compassion about how protective you are. That's your child. Your child is beautiful. Your child is smart. Your child is capable. And when someone else puts those limits and makes those derogatory comments, where's the compassion for that? And so, you know, that's something that really always resonated with me is, you know, it's not just the strangers in the store that say, why is your child three years old still sucking on a bottle, but it's the people closest to you sometimes that can be the most hurtful. So, you know, I really just wanted to come here and talk about the importance of allowing people space to have a friendship that is mutually beneficial and that isn't always focused on the good times. Anyone could be a friend when there's wine flowing and, you know, caviar and, and, you know, the balloons are popping and, you know, it's great to be friends when it's fun, but when someone's going through something, just being oh, mindful, I'm not going to say any memes to try to make someone feel better. I'm not going to competitive suffering. I'm not going to burden with questions. I'm just going to allow the conversation. And over time, as they start to, you know, 
really delve into what's available and what services are out there, then you can be a thought partner. And also it's really important to just ask questions like, do you want me to help you with this process so that you're not alone? Do you want me to go to a support group with you? And just having patience that it's an all consuming feeling when you get the diagnosis and that being self-absorbed and, you know, only feeling like your life right now is the focal point, that that's okay. That doesn't mean they're not a friend and they're not there for you. But I think it's a lot easier when you're 10 years in the journey to be mindful that, you know, it's, you know, you can allow yourself to be open to other people's experiences and problems. But if you're in the first year, it's not that your friend or your family member doesn't care about you and what you're going through, but it's that process of acceptance and going through all the phases and, you know, understanding and learning that there's hope and that there's so much available out there. And that sometimes, you know, just as a society, like we're always seeing the negative stories and the media, but there's so much love and there's so much availability and community and connection available in this, you know, autism community that it's going to be okay, but it's really just being mindful. It's easier when you're working with a family where you're teaching and, you know, because that relationship is usually not on a personal level so that when all you're doing is talking about their child, that's your job. It becomes a little more difficult when it's a personal relationship and it's going to affect everything. It's going to affect everything. And that you always have to be mindful of what holidays and birthday parties and special occasions and how that might look and ask questions about how you can make someone else's child feel comfortable if they have autism, what you can do to you know, make them feel comfortable in a part of something. And so that's really what I wanted to come here. And my takeaway is just that if you've done some of the things that I've talked about, which I have done, so that's why I'm able to reflect because I've been involved in the autism community for 26 years. And I've just watched over time the things that I did and the pitfalls of the conversations that I was having and really just being able to listen with compassion, ask people what they need and give people the space for, you know, like navigating their own journey. And they will see that, you know, there's gifts in this for everyone. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, Tracy. I can feel your passion through your speech. I love it. Thank you so much for your passion. And our next speaker is Tiffany Sumner. Inspired by a generation of women to take action in their own lives and redefining success on their own terms. Tiffany Sumner created Haas of Media as a go-to destination social media agency with a variety of done done for your services to help support fellow female business owners to chase their dreams, both big and small, by scaling their business and leveling up on social media. She has earned two degrees in marketing, graduating with the top of her class at Chapman University. Her background includes PR, social media management, branding, marketing, development, sales, event management, podcast production, social networking, content strategy development, and strategic partnerships. 
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Tiffany Sumner. Welcome. Good afternoon, everybody. It's so great to be here today as a speaker and help create awareness and educate others on the issue that surrounds our autism community. And I appreciate you for having me. As I mentioned, my name is Tiffany Sumner. I'm a mental health advocate, both business owner, and I'm also an autism mother to two children who are eight and 11. My son Ford was diagnosed with autism in 2011, right before his second birthday. He is nonverbal and according to the DSM-5 autistic diagnostic criteria, he's categorized as a level three. His pediatrician, Dr. Sears at the time, had seen some early signs. Once his communication had stopped and aside from his neurologist had been part of the team who made his initial diagnosis. It's been an intense six years in treatment schools and surviving a worldwide pandemic. In May of 2020, several days before his birthday, his father passed away tragically, leaving me to raise both kids on my own. So I'm not here today to talk about my traumatic journey as a single mother. I'm here today to talk about the silent pandemic of autism and the alarming rise in autism diagnoses in addition to the impact of the global pandemic. The CDC autistic uh, statistics reflect only up to 2018 with diagnosed rates of one in 45 children. In a more recent research study by JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, this July of 2022 states, the autism rate is climbing and now one in 30 children, which are hitting about one in 18 of our boys. There's an astounding increase year by year with no slower stop to it. Folks, this means we are now looking at the fact that there's not gonna be any children with an autism diagnosis in our very near future. The numbers have been doubling every five years or so with consistency for decades now. If we continue at this rate, this means kids born three years from now will be one of three to four diagnosed, kids eight years from now, every other child, if we continue down this path. 2030 means kids needing lifetime care will be outnumbered for those able to do so. So what happens to our military, police, firefighters, nurses, doctors, and parents that have autistic children? It's ignorant for us as a society to think this is not gonna affect us all and the workforce probably will be gone by 2050. What a lot of families find shocking is how many regress in autism versus how many are being born with it. Only a small percentage will end up employed typically, can live on their own or have a job. The probability of marriage or having kids is likely 1% or less in savants or close to one in a million. At present, little data exists on the mental health of parents raising a child with ASD during and post COVID-19 pandemic in the United States, in addition to the effects it has on our ASD children. One of the characteristics of the autism spectrum disorder is insistence on sameness and difficulty with transition or change. The pandemic completely flipped our world upside down and dismantled the autism community for many families. The prolonged isolation impacted our children with autism in a variety of ways. They became less physically active, have had longer screen time and lived with constant anxiety about the uncertainty. Disruptions in any of our children's routines have resulted in increased more aggression and behaviors. Parents were and still are struggling to balance their children's needs and their own work demands. 
It's a new frontier for our families. How do we care for children with developmental disability who need structure and routines while also working from home? External services and respite for family were suddenly taken away, created heightened anxiety. Parents have also had their own fears with COVID and the future. There are worries about job security and ability to survive economically. The loss of services and supports heightened fears about increased infection rates and disruption of these routines, likely adverse effects of our well-being for our children and our families, causing distress. Children with ASD had difficulty adhering to basic preventative measures such as mask wearing, social distancing, and hand hygiene. Prior to the pandemic, several studies have shown parents right raising a child with ASD are at an increased risk of mental health disorder, particularly anxiety and depression when compared to the general population. The risk is multifactorial, genetic liability, developmental characteristics of the child, caregiving stress, social stigma, and procuring as well as paying for the child's healthcare all place a substantial demand on all of our parents. This context coupled with the pandemic places parents in a perfect storm for experiencing psychological distress, particularly those related to the feelings of panic among parents raising a child with ASD to a comparison of our, our parents as a whole in the United States. Also the additional demands of continuously caregiving without rest, but at times would have increased caregiver burden, likely impacting their mental health and thereby the quality of care they delivered. Rather than being an afterthought, policymakers must understand that the needs of the people with autism are vastly different from the general population. They must provide further mental health support for people with autism and their caretakers as the nation emerges from lockdown. In the event of further local lockdowns or a second wave of a pandemic, legislation must provide additional freedoms and support to these people with autism. In the event of further um, I apologize. The mental health and welfare of family members who provide the home care to people with autism must be considered because they also su suffer from an increased rate of stress, depression, and anxiety. If the future prevalence of ASD remains unchanged over the next day, decade, there's going to be an estimated additional 1 million new cases resulting in an additional 4 trillion in the United States in social costs. However, if the rate of increase in prevalence continues, the cost could reach 15 trillion in 2029. And these estimates only reflect what society pays, not what the actual expenses are for our families that occur out of pocket. The financial burden of ASD is significant in identifying the modifiable causes of ASD and has the potential to provide tangible benefits. In 2020, the US annual costs was estimated at $223 billion and it's projected to rise to 589 billion in 2030. This data suggests clinicians, researchers, and policymakers should consider mental health of parents of children with ASD as the pandemic unfolds. As we know, there's no roadmap to this autism journey. What we can do is stand as a community to fight and bring awareness to the issues so that we can prepare for what's to come. Another way to help support is to find your local autism nonprofits. For us here in Southern California, I advocate for TACA located in Orange County. Their goal is to provide education, support information to parents to help their children who've been diagnosed with autism be the best they can be in the hopes of recovery and or independence. I'm also a supporter of Surfers Healing, which offers surf camps that positively impacts their children. 
with autism and has a profound impact also on our parents. Autism parents are also hearing about what their children cannot do. But at this camp, it's all about what their kids can do. Thank you guys for listening and having me here today. I wanna to thank the amazing panel of our autism warriors and our doctors and the Life Center of America for having us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you, Tiffany, for sharing your story. You guys all are amazing, amazing. Our next speaker is executive producer, Mark Blutman. Did I pronounce that your last name correctly, Mark? Blutman, um, Blutman is, is the second time was perfect. Okay, Mark Blutman, <laughs> he's executive producer. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Mark Blutman. Thank you very much. It is absolutely a, uh, an honor to be up here surrounded by so much passion and grace and inspiration. Um, I am a longtime uh, executive producer and writer of kids television. I'm known for my work on iconic shows uh, like Boy Meets World and more recently the continuation of that series called Girl Meets World, which we did for Disney. And I'm also the proud father of a uh, soon to be 24 year old uh, boy um, who was diagnosed uh, with Asperger at the age of 17. I have two boys and uh, Liam, as he refers to himself is our Aspie. Um, and, you know, as with a lot of males, uh, you know, for, for years, my wife at the time was telling me and being very, uh, you know, certain that Liam needed to be tested, that, uh, you know, there were things going on that led her to believe that he was on the spectrum. And like a lot of, you know, men, especially with Liam, who's was a good athlete, fairly highly functioning, I just cast it all aside. I didn't want to um, cop to it. You know, that was uh, unfortunate. It was part of being, you know, uh, an alpha dude and, and thinking that uh, he's just a couple of years behind in his development. And then um, finally, when he was diagnosed in around 2016, it was um, one of the greatest things that ever happened to me. Uh, in the change, the acceptance, uh, the ability to take my platform and my power, which is television, and become an advocate for my son, for your children, and for all the children out there that I don't know. And so I went to uh, Michael Jacobs, who was the creator of Boy Meets World and Girl Meets World, and I said, uh, we would drive into the studio together. And I said, listen, Liam was just diagnosed as, you know, Asperger being on the spectrum. And I'd like to do an episode. And he paused and he looked at me and he just looked into my eyes and said, of course. And so um, I proceeded to write what was uh, a love letter to my child and positive messaging to the rest of the world um, about Asperger and autism. Um, months later, the episode, uh, which was titled Girl Meets Farkle, so uh, it's available 
if anybody's interested on Disney Plus streaming uh, under Girl Meets World, um, I was nominated for a Writers Guild Award, which is pretty much I've, I've been nominated for six Emmys. I won an Emmy, but being nominated for that episode by my peers, the Writers Guild, um, was the highlight of, of my career. Um, certainly no greater professional honor. And I think that there are probably a lot more professionals like me who have the ability to write stories, who have children, uh, adult children, small children, whatever, who are part of this incredible, powerful uh, community of autistic children. And I say that because I believe it. Uh, the things that my own son, who, as I said, he's highly functioning, that doesn't make him any better, any worse. It's just what he's able to accomplish. He's building his sports brand. Uh, he has a Twitter page with 125,000 followers about college football that during college football season does a hundred million impressions per 28 days and he's monetizing it so what i see him accomplish and that's through as we know one of the traits is that that sole you know topic passion for him it's sports so while most kids are asleep or out dating or hanging out at the mall or seeing a movie he's he's on the computer doing his sports and he knows more about it than almost anybody so i'm in awe of the power and I know I have a responsibility. I also know what me following through in my work does. I got um, a direct message on my social media from a young fan of Girl Meets World who said, I watched that episode on autism four times and I was moved. And I am leaving my home of Indiana and I want to come to Los Angeles and I want to work with autistic children. And so to have this kind of effect is, is so empowering to me and humbling at the same time. I think there are shows out there that, that do the community justice um, in terms of portrayal. I believe the TV show Atypical does a very, very uh, responsible job. Um, you know, for years, the trope was always, you know, Tom Cruise in Rain Man. That was always the portrayal. And that was just so not accurate, of course. We're in a place now where there are more people like me that, you know, want to portray uh, you know, boys and girls uh, on the spectrum as accurately as possible. Uh, hopefully cast in my show, we did not. We had the actors portray, um, you know, uh, the characteristics. Eventually we'll be able to hire more people on the spectrum. Um, I believe a typical, not the lead, but I believe they, they do use uh, kids on the spectrum. I also want to tell you about what we sometimes face also 
the negative and, and, and a lot of you have touched on, you know, the bullying and, 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 and all that. And by the way, to that, I've always said in my head that if somebody is bullying somebody for being, you know, quirky and, you know, different and being on the spectrum, well, guess what? They're going to find a different reason to bully somebody else. Eventually that's who they are. And so whether it's, you know, bullying our, uh, exactly, exactly. And so, but I, I do also want to share that I almost every six months on social media, I come under attack for that episode of girl meets world, all these young, uh, pseudo woke kids calling me an ableist and saying it wasn't an accurate portrayal. Um, and at first I tried to, you know, reason back and say, look, we had three specialists that Disney assigned to the, the program that read every word that I wrote. And plus I was writing experiences from my own, you know, son. And so that makes it difficult when there are so many, you know, young people that want to be heard and use their social media platform to attack so many of us who ha have purity in our heart and are doing noble things. And they don't know, you know, in, in specific, there was a scene early in the episode where one of the four main characters thought, he was possibly autistic and the friend's immediate reaction was, oh my gosh, no, no way. We've known you for years. And, and so that was singled out as what kind of kids, who are these writers writing the kids wouldn't accept their friend? Well, if you watch the episode, of course they did. They got books in the episode. They looked it up online. They learned everything they could about autism and Asperger specifically, and then hugged their friend who didn't like being hugged because that's a trait, my son. And uh, so I just wish that young people who walk around uh, in the name of wokeness, back off and let us tell stories. And some we're going to get right. And sometimes we may miss, but we're out there doing it. We're out there shining a light on these amazing, powerful kids. So just back off. All right. And uh, I'm just really blessed that, uh, you know, I've been doing this 30 something years, writing and producing film and TV. And whenever I'm on a podcast, whenever I'm being interviewed and I'm asked what one of the highlights of my, you know, it's always that episode, um, uh, my love letter to Liam. So thanks for letting me share up here and um, I'll continue to, you know, write stories that, you know, we're all proud of. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark, for your transparency. Thank all of you for your transparency. It's beautiful. You guys are so amazing. Thank you. Our next speaker, Shannon Primer. She's a special needs paralegal advocate. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Shannon Primer. Hello, my name is Shannon Primer. I also have a child with autism, or as we should say, adult. He's 20 years old. He's nonverbal. Um, and as the other speaker said, he's 
like a giant man, but with about an 18 month old brain. So people often misunderstand um, that he's a grown up. And um, nonverbal is one of those things that people misunderstand a lot. Just because you can't speak doesn't mean you don't understand. And I want to make that really abundantly clear. Um, I know I'm supposed to talk about assistive technology, but I do have a few things to touch on since my child is different than everybody else's. Um, and in my political groups, I tend to have the most severe child, which kind of led me to a new career. Um, I was happy being a stay-at-home mom working one day a week as a waitress um, and volunteering for my husband's football team and raising money there. And when Austin was diagnosed, um, uh, I joked that we live through the looking glass um, because everything is turned upside down, just like Tiffany said. And then we have to start all the way over again. And so I didn't know what to do. So I started a journey on learning and how to help Austin. I ended up at the USD um, Law Clinic had an advocacy course and they were expecting teachers to show up and ended up 50% of us were parents that showed up, which surprised them to no end. Um, and one of those um, teachers that taught that ended up being my boss. Um, and so I worked for an attorney um, for quite a few years um, on call as she needed me. And one of her cases brought me to really assisted technology. Austin has had assisted technology since he was three. Um, one of our first devices was like $10,000. I almost lost that sucker at um, Disneyland. I almost had a panic attack that how was I going to explain to the district um, where his $10,000 device went. Nowadays, we're very fortunate. There's tablets. Um, it's pretty inexpensive. My child was the second child in my district to get one before we even had iPads. He had an iTouch with ProLoco to go. So I'm very familiar with that and talk chat. Um, and through the office came a case of a school district who was denying letting a student take their talking device home. And that particular client did not hire my boss, but being the only person in the office who had a nonverbal child, those were all the cases I got brought into. Um, every person that worked in our office did have somebody with autism as a child. And so we all came from different perspectives because when you meet one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. And that's a really big thing to know. When you've met one, you've only met one. And that case made me mad because I like to joke, when you all go to work, do you leave your voices at work? And people are like, no, and they look confused at me. And I'm like, then what's a child's job? And they're like, what? And I'm like, school. Why would they leave their voice at school? So I took this back to my board of Educate Advocate. And I said, this case makes me mad. I didn't make any money off of it. Didn't matter to me. And we took it all the way to the Capitol. And we asked for a talking advice, the device bill. Um, that students with autism could take them home. They could take them home over the summers, vacations, whatever. And um, I don't give very many politicians credit, but I will say Assembly O'Donnell. I asked for an apple tree. He gave me an entire orchard. And if you know anything about politics, you normally ask for an orchard and you get one little apple tree. And he said, no, we're going to make this all assisted technology, not just talking devices. And that freaked out one of our board members. And I was like, it doesn't matter. I have clients that this will this will affect. 
And so we did take it all the way for all assistive technology, which also includes speech to text, text to speech for our kids. A lot of our kids um, have very slow handwriting. So it's hard for them to write. So they can now talk into a device and it writes for them and helps them correct. Google has some amazing um, apps that's just built into their protocol anyways. And then you can upgrade to get even better ones. Um, it also does FM devices that help deaf students um, who can hear filter out noise. And for those of you who have auditory processing issues or um, hearing loss, that's a really big deal when you have background noise. And um, those are now also allowed to go home if they're educationally related, which if you have homework at home, it's educationally related because your parents might need to help you. Same thing with your, everybody gets a Chromebook now, but most kids have to turn it in at the end of the year. Um, our kids are allowed to take it home because if they have, the school recommends you this reading list, it's educationally related for them to have it at home. And most administrators and teachers don't think like that. And I have to point out, you give a reading list every single year, you have to send the device home because they can't com complete that. And um, again, really with our nonverbal kids, you can't assume just because they don't talk doesn't mean they don't understand. Um, my 20 year old, he has very good receptive language. And let me tell you, he has a tad bit of a temper if you talk badly about him. He does not take it lightly and he will tell you. And I have learned the one thing too, is when he has a meltdown, it's generally because I misinterpreted something. And so I hope the general public learns to take into consideration um, that what you see may not be bad parenting. It might be our children having meltdowns. And in little kids, you can get away with that a lot. When you have a man-sized child that's five foot 10, it's not so pretty. <laughs> um, so please, again, have compassion with us. And um, like one of the speakers said, I lost a lot of friends in this, that they just disappear. You get cancer and everybody wants to bring you dinner. They want to help take care of you and they want to help recover you. When you have a kid with autism, they fall by the wayside and you actually find out who your real friends are. And I will tell you, I have built a, an amazing community um, out of the friends I've met. And the other good point that was made is the first year you're not going to do, you're not going to help somebody else because people say they want to do what I do. I said, you can't, you can't do that now. You've got three years at least to get out of the weeds. Like just, just worry about getting your kid help. And then we'll worry about you helping somebody and paying it forward later. And we'll work on that. I'll help you with those skills. So if you're out there and you're at that point where you want to learn to help other families and advocate, Tiffany can help. I can help. You'll meet Paula shortly. Um, we all do this. We do it for the love of our children, but we also do it for the love of all of your children. And I would love, um, since we have the lovely um, writer and producer on here, I would love to see some television shows about our nonverbal children who get misunderstood. So I'm going to advocate for my son's community that we would love to have some stories and um, told about our kids too, because we are the most misunderstood um, people on earth. And COVID did make it a million times worse. I did get 13 kids back in school by September of 2020. And for those of you who don't live in California, that might not sound impressive. Our kids didn't go back to school until March of 2021. I had 13 kids, not counting my own, back in school that I took for free because our kids, Tiffany's kid, my kid, they regressed so badly that I, I don't know if I can get my kid in a day program right now, 
because of the, we had three years worth of regression for six months of being off. So please, again, have compassion. And like Tiffany said, I'm sorry, I did not set my timer. I apologize if I go over or not enough. Um, <laughs> Tiffany's right, I can talk for hours. <laughs> and if you can't hear them, they're both here with me. So um, again, have some compassion with us. And when you hear our legislators talking about just needs with disabilities, it takes three or five years to get one bill generally passed. So whatever we're dealing with with COVID right now with mental health, which half my kids are mental health kids um, on my caseload and then half are like Austin. And then I have a few other different disabilities like Down syndrome and whatnot. But um, it's gonna take five years for those services to catch up with us and to get actual regular, real legislation into place to help our kids. So please, please have compassion with our mental health families also because COVID, especially in California was horrible. So thank you guys um, for inviting me. Sorry if I talked too long. Um, I really hope um, that we all learned something here because I know I've already learned some stuff. So have a great afternoon or evening for the most of you. Thank you, Shannon. Thank you, Shannon, for sharing your story. Thank you so much for that. Our next speaker is Dr. Bob Sears. Robert W. Sears, MD, is a practicing pediatrician, is the author of the Vaccine Book and the Autism Book, and co-author of the Baby Book and the Portable Pediatrician. Also, Bob is an autism advocate. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Dr. Bob Sears. Welcome. Hey, uh, thanks, you guys. I'm thrilled to be on. I appreciate you having me on the show. Such an honor to have you here today, Dr. Bob. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, just jump right in or? Uh... Yes, sir. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I've had a busy day so far, but um, you know, I spend my whole day in the office uh, talking to patients about vaccines. And uh, even though almost all my patients uh, don't do vaccines, some patients will do vaccines. And so I spend a lot of time chatting about it. And, um, and I want to just talk to you guys today, I guess, about uh, how uh, my patients uh, whose families are affected by autism, how they're approaching the vaccine decision and what these families are facing and kind of what they're choosing to do with their kids who have autism, as well as their next kids that they have down the, down the line. I think that's what a lot of parents want to know. Um, I think there's, um, there's a general feeling that uh, kids with autism uh, are very uh, sensitive. They're very chemically sensitive, a lot of food allergies, and there's a lot of um, uh, you know, theories that uh, autism, of course, while it's partly genetic related, it's also environmentally related. And people um, have a lot of theories that environmental chemicals might be one thing that's uh, uh, contributing to the rise in autism. So naturally, parents who have a child with autism would, would automatically think right away about vaccines and the chemicals that are in vaccines. And what should I do with my kids now, you know, that uh, they have autism? Should I continue vaccines? And what is the risk if I don't continue vaccines? Um, I think the answer is pretty uh, often clear to families whose child was, seemed to be immediately affected by vaccines. Um, I've talked to, you know, I don't know, eight or 900 families who have a child who was very healthy and had very normal development for the first year or so of life. And then suddenly, uh, and very quickly developed a lot of signs of autism uh, directly after vaccines. And so these parents suspect that the vaccines were related. 
And I have no way to identify or test whether or not the vaccines were directly related, but but a lot of parents feel like they were. And so those families, I think, naturally don't continue to vaccinate their child. Um, there's, of course, uh, some children develop autism and it doesn't seem to happen in any, any direct timing with vaccines. It just seemed to happen either very slowly or starting closer to birth, or uh, it seems to come on uh, even, uh, you know, like not related to vaccines, but even some kids develop autism and they've never had vaccines. So there's kind of a whole different spectrum of how, that, of how autism can occur. And so when families see it happen directly after vaccines, I think the natural in inclination, as I said, is to not vaccinate. And these families typically would not want to vaccinate their next babies. But so my experience with that as a pediatrician so far, I, I'm very happy to be able to say is I've never had any patients severely affected by any of these diseases. All the diseases we vaccinate against, all 17 of the diseases, I haven't had a single case uh, where a child was very severely ill, their life was threatened. Thankfully, no one's ever died of an infectious disease in my practice in the 23 years that I've been doing that. And the reason I point that out is I have a very large unvaccinated population of patients. Um, I'd say all of my families with autism don't pretty much pretty much don't continue to vaccinate. And, and I have a lot of families that don't have autism and they don't vaccinate either. And um, so I have a population of patients that should be very susceptible to death and disability from all these diseases. And so far, no one has been. You know, I had meningitis and whooping cough and measles and chickenpox and hepatitis and all these things we vaccinate against. No one's had a severe case. I've had to put a few kids in the hospital where they needed hospitalized treatment, but their lives were never threatened. It was never serious. They just needed a little bit more advanced medical care for it. And they all did just fine. So I think a lot of my patients don't view all these infectious diseases as problematic or really dangerous or really serious to their kids. And so far, that's been my experience in my office. And I, I hope it stays that way. Of course, if you look nationwide, we do every year have, have some deaths and disability from these diseases. But for me as a single pediatrician, I just haven't seen it yet. Um, so I think each family raising a child with autism and, and your next babies, if you choose to not opt in for vaccines, I think the risk that your child will be harmed is, is very, very small. I think it's acceptably small especially I think if you are now taking a more natural approach to life. I think all, all these families with autism, they like to now live organically, feed their kids as naturally as they can, avoid environmental chemicals. A lot of families will be uh, detoxing their kids to try to get chemicals out of their kids. So I think it's natural for these families to then not want to put chemicals into their children. And we know vaccines, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's uh, unavoidable that vaccines do uh, have a number of chemicals. And so I respect families' choices to opt out of vaccines in these circumstances. And I don't, I don't blame them for their decision. I'm not surprised for, about their decision. Um, you know, we have a lot of uh, um, school mandates that are coming up uh, nationwide where states are trying to make vaccines mandatory for school. 
And in California, they passed the mandate a few years ago. New York has that mandate. Several states do. The good news is most school, most states don't mandate vaccines for school, all right? So you might live in a free state where it's not mandated. But here's the good news. Even if you live in a state that does mandate vaccines for school, there's a federal law that, that uh, supersedes that state law. It's called the IDEA law, Individuals with Disabilities in Education Act. And you can read it, and it's very clear. No state can keep a child out of school or deny a, a child school services for any reason. And that includes vaccines. So that federal law supersedes any state mandate laws. So if your child has autism, your child qualifies under the IDEA law to continue to attend school, even, even if the school is trying to mandate your vaccines. So you do have the option to opt out. Um, you know, the uh, people I think could also argue, and it's, it's a valid argument, if too many people stopped vaccinating, then wouldn't all these diseases come back? If every, every family has autism, stop vaccinating, if they don't vaccinate their next kids, if too many of the neighbors start vaccinating, because um, we already know that's happening. We already know vaccine acceptance has gone down, not related to autism in general, just more and more people, I think, are looking at raising their kids healthy and natural and trying to avoid, you know, like a, a real, like a pharmaceutical-based uh, lifestyle. I think a lot of us adults are trying to do that as well, but I think more and more families um, independent of the autism issue are just opting out of vaccines. Are we going to see more diseases return and are more people's lives going to be put at risk if too many people opt out? I would say the answer to that is no. Um, we have eliminated almost all of these diseases, not really because of vaccinations, but mostly just because we are better at living. We have, you know, a better nutrition, better sanitation has gone a long way, better living conditions, less malnutrition, right? Um, uh, people are, you know, have better access to, to medical care when they're sick. All those factors is really, in my opinion, why we've eliminated these diseases. Uh, vaccines may have played some role in that, but I think the larger role was just played by society and advances in our society as a whole. So if more people uh, opt out of vaccines now, I don't think we'll see a return of, of diseases. We might see a return of some of the classic diseases that were typical for children, like chickenpox. Yeah, if, if more and more people opt out of chickenpox vaccine, we'll probably see a return of chickenpox. Uh, we might see a return of measles um, if more and more people opt out. Um, we haven't yet. You know, measles has, has pretty much remained eliminated with the occasional outbreak, um, but we're still fortunate we don't see a lot of measles. But the good news with these net, with these uh, what used to be uh, common childhood diseases, is their fat their fatality rate is very low. The fatality rate for measles, fortunately, is in about one in every ten thousand cases. So it's a very low fatality rate. Um, <clears throat> Uh, much much lower than say COVID, for example. Um, it's even lower lower fatality rate than than influenza in a lot of cases. So measles, I don't think, is a big danger, even if it does return. But for the most part, you know, we're not going to see things come back simply because we're better at living. So I feel like, in my opinion, families do have a legitimate argument 
to opt out of vaccines for their child with autism, opt out of them for their next kids if that's their decision. They're not putting us in danger. You know, if, if you're a family that vaccinates, then you should feel confident that, you know, unvaccinating families around you with autism, that they don't put your kids at risk if you have confidence in your vaccines. We're not seeing a return of diseases, so there's no risk there. So I, I like to see our nation not get divided over issues like this. It's so terrible. And I mean, I have talked to so many patients that their family has disinvited them to the family reunion. You can't come visit us for Christmas because you're one of those families. We don't want you people coming to visit us for Christmas because you're going to bring your unvaccinated kids into our house and we don't like it. How sad is that when we bring up uh, uh, discrimination in, in that form? I, I do feel like it is a very uh, legitimate form or unlegitimate form of, of discrimination that people are unfairly having to, to suffer nowadays. I'd like to see us all come together and accept people for their medical choices, vaccinated, unvaccinated, um, no matter what, you know, autism, you don't have autism, you know, uh, whatever your uh, orientation is or preference or lifestyle, we are all human beings and who are capable of, of loving and accepting each other and uh, living together, right? And I like to see us do that and not let the pharmaceutical industry or our government try to decide uh, divide us by spreading fear and trying to tell people that unvaccinated people uh, are different and uh, should have fewer rights and fewer access to public facilities. And I feel like we are, are all the same at heart and underneath it all. And we should be able to live that way. So that's kind of how I, I look at the issue of uh, vaccines, not just for families with autism, but I think all families in general. And that's why I love like doing my podcast, you know, the vaccine conversation, or I have the my video podcast on the vaccineconversation.com. That's been a lot of fun to do. You can see those in my bio uh, for this conference. And I'm very happy to be able to have this opportunity to talk to you guys today. Thank you, Dr. Bob. You're welcome. Thank you, Dr. Bob, for sharing your expertise. I learned a lot. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Our next speaker is, forgive me, I'm going to try to pronounce your last name, Paula. Paula Huvowski. Was that close? Yes, close? Huzowski. Okay. She is a autism advocate. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Paula Hubowski. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you everyone for all of the resources you're providing our families. I'm Jesse, my sound, I apologize for that. Okay, I'll try again. Um, thank you so much for all you do for our families. Thank you, Dr. Sears, for touching on some controversial topics. We greatly appreciate all you do for our community. Um, I'm Paula Hazowski. I'm a general education teacher in Southern California. I have a master's in curriculum instruction and have been majoring in students with exceptional needs, including children with autism in my class since the early 2000s. I also sit on the board of Educate Advocate, a nonprofit organization that assists families with children with exceptional needs. The first year I started majoring in a child with um, exceptional needs, I was approached by my administrator to assist a child diagnosed with intellectual disability and developmental delays. My principal explained to me that at the time we did not have a place for him in the general education class. And if, I mean, in, in a special education class, we, um, 
we had to place him in a general education class with Christian services. If we tried to put him into a special education class at that time, he was going to be placed in a class with children that had no language and he was going to regress rather than make progress. And of course, I agreed to mainstream this child. I was the grade level lead and I served on the district's curriculum mapping and assessment committee. I sincerely wanted to help this child and I wanted to do what was right and be a role model for my colleagues. Fortunately, I had a supportive partner teacher that year who was flexible and kind and patient. The rest of the grade level, however, frowned upon my willingness to accommodate this child. They did not want the responsibility of having children with exceptional needs placed in their classrooms in the future. And honestly, it can be intimidating. And if you do not have adequate supports in place, it is challenging and can become very overwhelming. As we all know, the number of children with exceptional needs has greatly increased over the years, along with the severity of their needs. And even though school districts have made many advancements the last two decades, many districts still struggle to meet the needs of the children in the communities that, in which they service. The following year, I had two children with exceptional needs placed in my room. And as the years progressed, I continually had more children and more children placed in my classroom with exceptional needs. I did not have adequate supports in place for all of my students. I have had to learn how to effectively document children's needs and behaviors in order to help families obtain services. I continue to hit roadblocks every year, even with the support of the families I service. A resource specialist had once referred to me as a walking IEP. I was naturally able to accommodate children in a variety of ways. I was able to apply skills that I had acquired earlier on from mainstream and younger children with exceptional needs to assist older children as I changed grade levels. I witnessed academic growth and I was very proud of it. It was not until after I had my own children with exceptional needs that I woke up and I realized that no matter what a great teacher I thought it was, I could have done so much more. It was not until I was faced with having to battle the medical community and educational system simultaneously that I realized what a struggle parents were facing. It was not until I watched my own child suffer and struggle that I gained a more clear understanding of the needs of so many of my students. Life experience taught me far more than I could have ever imagined. I have been a part of countless IEPs, 504s, and SST teams in a few school districts. SST stands for Student Success Team or Student Study Team, depending on the district. 504s come from the Section 504 of the Federal Rehabilitation Act, which is a civil rights law. IEPs are individual educational plans. IEPs provide specialized instruction or services to students and is governed under the Individual with Disabilities Act idea. I will go into more details about each of these. Most districts start with the SST process before moving to a 504 or an IEP. It's usually the first step in identifying children with exceptional needs under child fine laws. Children who are not performing at grade level expectations are oftentimes referred to an SST for tiered intervention supports to help the child become more successful. If the interventions fail, then the child is referred for special education assessments. Many students with exceptional needs get stuck in the SST process that delays them from receiving appropriate services in a timely manner. In my opinion, SSTs really should be used as a safety net to provide supports to families or to students who do not meet eligibility for IEP or 504 
and who are not performing to their true potential or meeting grade level expectations. Instead, many schools are using SSTs as a filter. Many special education staff prefer to wait until second grade before they start to consider the possibility of assessing a child for a learning disability. Some children have delays that resolve with no interventions and they do catch up by the end of second grade. I strongly support and advocate for early interventions to help close learning gaps as soon as possible. Different school sites within a single district can handle their SSTs very differently. Some school sites start with a pre-SST. These meetings usually do not involve parents and primarily consist of the referring teacher and a support team of other teachers. Administrators may or may not be present. I have witnessed pre-SSTs being dragged out for years and had parents tell me that they had requested special education assessments years earlier while the child was in a pre-SST process. I have witnessed pre-SST teams and SST teams ignore the verbal requests of families if they suspect a parent is addicted to a substance, is not being truthful, is homeless, or expect the family to be transient. Oftentimes, these are the children who need the most help if requests are not made, um, who need the most help. If requests are not made in writing, Oftentimes they are disregarded because schools feel that there is no paper trail to prove the request was ever made. Once a request is made by a parent, the school district has a certain period of time to begin assessing the child. Different states may have different time periods. A 504 is less formal than an IEP. A child in a wheelchair may qualify for a 504 and not an IEP. The child may need accommodations to help access all parts of the school, but may, not have a, but may not have a learning disability requiring specialized academic instruction. 504 plans for students with disabilities who do not need specialized academic instruction or support. To qualify for a 504, a student has a disability and the disability interferes with the child's ability to learn in a general education classroom. Like SSTs, 504s are often, um, are, Many districts often provide 504s when IEPs would be more appropriate. IEPs usually provide more supports than 504s. Students who qualify for an IEP have one or more of the 13 disabilities listed in IDEA, and the disability must affect the child's educational performance in the general education setting. The child must need specialized instruction to make progress, and you can query Google for more information in regards to 504s versus IEPs. There are several variables you need to be aware of when working with either SST, 504, or IEP team. Your, teammate, your team members make a difference. Team members can frequently change. Your relationship with school staff impacts your ability to effectively work with other members on your child's team. Depending on the team you're working with, you might catch more flies with honey than vinegar, or if you are too kind, you may get railroaded into signing agreements you don't clearly understand. When we do not have adequate services in place to meet the needs of our most vulnerable kids, we are pushing those kids away and we are alienating them. I've witnessed children as young as five to six years of age being set up to fail by overwhelmed administrators and support staff in order to pressure parents to find alternative placements for their children. 
We are not just alienating the children, but alienating the caregivers and making it more difficult for them to help their children. The situations I witnessed affected children with behavioral challenges. A child lacking skills related to frustration and tolerance may act out and educators may perceive his behaviors as being attention seeking or manipulative. That child is just throwing a fit because he doesn't want to have to do his work. Instead of being punished, excluded, alienated, the child needs to learn skills to function successfully in the classroom. If these children happen to attend a different school or even had a different teacher, the situation may not have escalated to the extent in which it did. These children need a team of adults who could collaborate and work to, to teach the child the needed skills to be successful in the classroom. And there is hope we can fix a broken problem. Our system is broken. In my school district, in my school district, I know an administrator who resides in the school in which she teaches. She has nine, she is not a teacher, I'm so sorry. I work with her as a teacher. She's now an administrator and at her school site, she has nine autism classes. She's phenomenal. She lives in the community. She invests a lot of time and energy into the, the community and she cares a great deal about her children and all of the children that run through her classroom or her through her school now. She um, works hard to limit SST interventions to six to eight weeks. She understands that if a child it has a learning disability and is not addressed until second grade, then several years of opportunity to intervene and assist has been lost. And when in distress, she does not hesitate to call the district office and wave the white flag. She advocates for her staff to make sure their needs are met too. Fortunately, the district also cares deeply for the community, and during troubled times, even the director of special education arrived in his running shoes to the school site to fill in as an IDIA autism aide. In a single school district, school sites can handle their population of children quite differently. Hopefully, other schools in our school district and surrounding districts will learn from her success. Joining support groups of other parents in your community and surrounding communities is quite helpful in learning services available to your community and near you. I am continually learning of new strategies and new resources families are able to access. Based on my experience, I am not an attorney, I am not a paid parent advocate. If you have concerns about your child's education, get involved. Before making complaints, ask questions and find a way to be involved in the school community. If you're having a difficult time getting the results you want for your child at a school site, investigate what's happening at other sites. Put your requests in writing, provide documentation to support your requests. It is our life experiences that have taught us what our children need and oftentimes we need to educate the educational community in order to effectively advocate for our children. We need to establish innovative pathways to success for our children and for future generations. We have the ability to fix a broken system together. If you would like additional information, feel free to check out Educate Advocate's website at educateadvocateca.com. Our nonprofit provides resources for California families. We do have a list of amazing parent advocates and educational attorneys that represent our families. We also have a lot of, um, we provide a lot of assistance for free. I personally have had the pleasure of working with both Shannon Primer and Elizabeth Eubanks, an educational attorney, and I have been very blessed to have them assisting me on this journey. Thank you so much for having me today. I hope I gave everyone lots of information.
Thank you, Paula. Thank you so much, Paula, for sharing your expertise. So we have two speakers left, but before I introduce our next speaker, I want to thank the sponsors. We have Ragnay Sneka. She's the founder of World Women Conference and Awards, Women Entrepreneurs, TV Changemakers, Coach and Public Speaker. Michael D. Butler, he is the CEO of Beyond Publishing. He's a book publisher, global speaker, media coach. Daniel Gomez, keynote speaker, corporate trainer, executive coach, confidence architect, and author. Melanie Ake, she is the founder of Everyday Leaders, professional coaching and consulting, and she's a certified John Maxwell team leadership coach. And myself, Dr. Lakeisha James, I am the founder of Designer Events by Lakeisha, where we specialize in corporate events, event design, and set design for films and plays. Thank you all sponsors for sponsoring our events. Our next speaker is... Jenna Champagne. She's an autism mom. She's a retired um, RN, professor, diplomat of medical cannabinoid sciences. Did I pronounce that correctly, Jenna? Very close. It's cannabinoid sciences. <laughs> okay, it's thank you. One. You get it fast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our next speaker, Jenna Champagne. Hello, I'm so excited oh. to be here and, and just so impressed with everybody's stories. And thank you so much, everybody, for sharing your experiences and your knowledge today. I, I just I love that you know we can come together on these types of events and, and just bring our, our collective knowledge to the masses and help them really understand, you know, what we are going through as autism parents and what our children experience. So the title of my presentation, Cannabis for Autism Power Production, may have perked your interest and maybe it even raised your eyebrows. That was my initial response about upon hearing a friend discuss using cannabis for her son with autism. As a nurse and an autism mom, we dove into the biomedical approach to target my daughter's physical autism imbalances from the very start. We have tried or considered just about every possible biomedical intervention, but cannabis definitely wasn't on my list. After all, I hadn't learned anything about the biological mechanisms and potential benefits of medical cannabis in nursing school, nor is it taught in medical school, which represents a major barrier for patients seeking competent medical cannabis guidance. Our biomedical journey began when my daughter was diagnosed at severe autism at age two and later she was labeled mentally retarded and unable to learn by the school district in second grade. She was nonverbal until age 10, and when puberty began, she was still largely unable to express her needs. Cannabis came into the picture for us when my daughter experienced a severe puberty crisis in 2014, and I used my nurse knowledge to objectively compare all of the options to address her aggression, self-injury, and property destruction behaviors, and that's when I learned that cannabis was objectively the safest and potentially the best option for her. I've never felt more helpless than those devastating months witnessing my child suffer to the extent of injuring herself and others in a blind rage. Thankfully, cannabis was an effective answer that eased her puberty crisis behaviors and made our home life manageable, and it even spared her out of home placement. Interestingly, it was the pain targeting compounds in cannabis that were most effective for her. And thankfully, my daughter is now able to express when she's in pain. This experience lends to my belief that autism behaviors can be an expression of nonverbal communication. Of all the biomedical interventions we have tried over the years, cannabis was the highest impact. Of course, this was in addition to homeschooling for academic, the traditional ABA, speech, and OT, which also helped immensely. 
So cannabis is not a fix all. Currently, my daughter is 20 years old. She's fully verbal and conversational. And she graduated and earned her high school diploma last year. I will never proclaim that our life is perfect, but cannabis provided a safe and effective solution to manage her behaviors while also improving her quality of life and function thanks to its deeper balancing benefits. My resulting passion for cannabis turned our trauma into purpose, and I've since educated thousands of patients on strategies to optimize their cannabis therapy outcomes, many who have experienced equal or even more profound benefits. The potential of cannabis to improve symptoms in those with autism are supported by hundreds of research studies. And due to the limited time today, I will just touch briefly on some of the main scientific concepts. I will also provide resources for my, hung my kindred hungry brain syndrome autism parents who like to look in more deeply into some of these topics and for whom this option may resonate. The photo to the right is a cover of a nationwide magazine that published in 2017 featuring my daughter's cannabis autism success story, which I also refer to as my coming out of the cannabis closet moment as a nurse. Currently, tens of thousands of parents in the United States choose to administer cannabis to their child with autism, despite the sometimes complex legalities and hoops to access cannabis. Research outcomes support that 80% of those using cannabis for autism experience significant quality of life improvements. Additionally, in a risk versus benefit assessment, comparing cannabis versus the pharmaceutical approach, cannabis with its unsurpassed safety profile is objectively less risky and often the more effective option. In fact, common outcomes of cannabis supplementation include reduced reliance or weaning from pharmaceutical medications with physician oversight, resulting in decreased side effects, improved quality of life and function. Cannabis is an effective tool for de-escalating autism crisis situations with the added potential to provide deeper balancing effects specific to the gut, brain, and immune systems, which are commonly out of whack in our children with autism. Research further supports that endocannabinoid deficiency is a contributor to autism, and the compounds in the cannabis plant can seamlessly fill in these lacking nutrients and promote balance. The take home here is that science trumps the stigma and the evidence-based citations and references supporting all of my statements today, which may be found, are found in my autism cannabis articles posted in my media kit website below, which is www.janachampagne.com. For those who are brand new to the concept of the human endocannabinoid system, think of it as the motherboard of our body, responsible for maintaining homeostasis or optimal health balance in every other system of the body. It includes targeting of the imbalances that are inherent to autism in the brain, gut, and immune systems especially. Endocannabinoid deficiency is linked with autism in the research, which means the, their bodies are unable to produce ample endo or internal cannabinoids to stay in balance. Additionally, cannabinoids are considered vital nutrients and are actually argued necessary for life. The cannabis plant has the most prolific source of phyto or plant sourced cannabinoids available to supplement these vital nutrients that are lacking in those with autism, which explains why cannabis can have such a profoundly positive impact as an intervention for autism. The take home here is that our bodies make compounds 
that are nearly identical in structure and function when compared to the cannabinoids produced by the cannabis plant. Add the fact that cannabis has been used as medicine for thousands of years and boasts an unsurpassed safety profile, and it's only natural to question the incentive for federal restriction of cannabis access to patients in need, especially when we freely allow opioid prescriptions which kill patients every 18 minutes in this country. As a nurse, I was taught to follow patient needs and that has driven my education of cannabis patients and medical professionals and the advocacy roles that I fill today. Currently, only two pharmaceuticals are FDA approved for autism, the antipsychotics, Abilify and Risperdone. In addition, many pharmaceuticals are prescribed as off-label use for autism, including antidepressants and SSRIs, anxiolytics like benzodiazepines and Ativan, stimulants like Ritalin and Adderall for ADD and ADHD, and anticonvulsants like Lamictal. The mainstream pharmaceutical approach for autism is high risk, especially considering these drugs are not approved for use in children, and we really have no clue what the long-term effects may be. The, the declared risks of these pharmaceuticals are bad enough, with potential to threaten quality of life like male breast development and extrapyramidal symptoms, or even be life-threatening like suicidal ideation, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, and Steven Johnson syndrome. When compared with the potential risks of cannabis, which are minimal, especially with the non-intoxicating compounds, this cannab pursuing cannabis was the natural choice for my daughter. The primary risk of cannabis therapy is pharmaceutical interactions and screening by a knowledgeable medical professional with dose spacing can easily mitigate this risk. My passion for improving access to cannabis for autism spawned the creation of 501c3 Autism Safe Haven at www.autismsafehaven.org, which is committed to creating cannabis-inclusive autism care resources, care homes, and communities. In addition to being cannabis-inclusive, Autism Safe Haven's model also provides many of the resources that contributed to my daughter's amazing improvements. Unity Formula's CBD products are optimal therapeutic quality, legal in every state of the US and many countries, and they offer a mind line of products specifically formulated for use with autism and other neurological conditions. CBD and hemp compounds are not intoxicating and will not risk functional impairment or adverse effects in children and teens like THC may cause. Unity also offers free nurse guidance, which I highly recommend prior to combining cannabis with pharmaceuticals and a 20% off coupon code to discount your purchase. Additionally, these are products with purpose and a portion of every purchase is donated to Autism Safe Haven. I hope this introduction to Cannabis for Autism helps expand your paradigm on this important topic and promotes realization of its potential as a harm reduction tool for autism. I hope you will join me in advocating for improved legal access and expanded use of cannabis for autism families in need in the United States, and also in creating competent cannabis care resources. Thank you. Thank you, Jana. Thank you, Jana, for sharing your expertise. Thank you. So we do have a last speaker. Um, after the last speaker, we will have words from our hosts, Rajaline Gigi Sabat, and then we'll close out with prayer. So our last speaker, I'm going to ask you to pronounce your name for me. I don't want to butcher it. It's Isleth uh, Zelda. 
Isleth, and I was going to say Isleth too. Okay, she is our next speaker. I am pulling up your bio now. She is an author to accepting her Asperger tendencies, therapeutic art coach, spiritual life coach, owner of Zelda Line Help, where I am translator and an interpreter and director of nonprofit learning idiom, where we teach English and Spanish virtually as well as art. Both Zelda Line Help and Learning Idiom now are the first bilingual publishing company in Arkansas. We publish books in Spanish and English. Podcast host to Moving Mountains for You and Spanglish podcast Transcending La Familia. Please um, welcome our last speaker, Esleth Zedalon. Did I pronounce that correctly? I was close. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Um, You're not the first or the last that will uh, not say it right. Okay, I'm Jewish and so it's Hebrew. Um, It's hard for people to say. Um, And so I'm just, I just wanna thank Gigi and all the sponsors for putting this event together. Autism is something that's very near and dear to my heart because I am a autism mom. Uh, My son, he's been getting therapy since he was three and he still currently does get therapy. Uh, There's days where he, you know, doesn't say a word to me the whole day until like five or 6 p.m. And the whole day he'll say maybe like 50, 60 words tops. And so, you know, um, raising a son in with two different cultures to learn and two different languages to learn um, has been a challenge. But, you know, I truly believe that God gave every parent their kid for a reason. And it's because he trusted you enough to train that kid, you know, the best way that you can. And to me, I love kids. Like this is something that I've always, always, ever since I was small, I was always around kids and I loved kids. That's probably why I'm a virtual and in-person teacher because I love babies. <laughs> um, and so, and I have so much patience, you know, for them, uh, you know, having a special needs kid, it makes it so much easier whenever you're teaching other kids that don't have those, you know, uh, special qualities that, I love about my son, you know, he brings me so much joy, you know, there's just something about kids that they can literally turn your mindset and just give you that little piece of joy if you allow them, if you can find those moments, those joyful moments that they're trying to give to you, you know, don't take life so seriously, like to me, that's the one thing I love about kids is that like, you know, innocence that they have in their mind of just you know, they can find joy so easily. And I think it's because they haven't been damaged by, you know, life. And, you know, they don't have a very, you know, some, of course, do, but the majority and, you know, they're just so innocent. And they're so like, there's just nothing like holding like, I I got to hold a, a one week uh, baby the other day, it was the greatest feeling in the world. <laughs> like, um, I just love babies. Yeah, you have to be really careful. But, you know, um, I think as just, we are here for a reason. And I truly believe that the best way for you to parent your special needs kids is to learn their language, learn their love language, learn how they learn. Because the, not every kid learns the same way uh, with the experience that I've had of being, of teaching multiple, you know, people and young adults and children as well. Everyone learns differently. And especially if you have a special needs kid, learn how they learn because 
that will help you become a better parent for them. That will help you be able to connect with them and you'll be able to have that stronger bond with them. And so I want to challenge every single parent that, you know, has those special needs kids is to learn how they learn and to, you know, expand on that, you know, take interest in what they have interest in. Maybe you don't know a lot about it, but once, you know, my son, if you get him started talking about, you know, Minecraft and Among Us and all those little things, he'll talk your ear off, you know, if he trusts you. <laughs> but he's an extremely nonverbal kid and he knows English and Spanish. And so I challenge him all the time, you know, you know, to to you to change the world with his words. I always tell him every single day, when I tell him, when I wake him up, I'm like, choose to change the world with your words today. And, you know, and so I always, always just pour into him because we all need pouring into, in, into ourselves. And even as children, they need it even more because they're still, they're still transitioning into who they're going to become. And so just make sure that when you're leading your kids, you're leading with love, you're leading with patience, you're leading with a joyful heart, you know, and you're not letting the stresses of this life, you know, um, corrupt your, your parenting skills. You know, I, um, me and, uh, Sharice Pastor Sharice Stapleton, she was, she's in Flint, Michigan. Um, we do parenting classes and just the way that we help people with their trauma and just kind of educate them on what it, what it's like to live trauma-free from, you know, maybe you've been molested, maybe you've been, you know, there's just so many things that people go through and they don't heal from. And then as an adult and as a parent, they pass that on to their kids. They become those parents that are, they're not healthy parents for their children. And so we, as a team, both in English and Spanish, we help these um, families kind of just get over their trauma and also teach them how to teach how to better parent their kids and to me there's nothing better than doing that because i know that with every parent that we help uh we uh, there's just kids that are going to benefit from that and that's a whole legacy that we're changing that's a whole generation that we're changing for the better and so i'm just so happy and honored to be with you guys and i i love you know my son he even though he is 10 years old and he's still learning every day and I'm still learning more things about him. I'm just, um, I'm so grateful that God chose me to lead him. And I take that very, very uh, seriously because I, I always challenged him last, last year, I challenged him to write a book. You know, I, uh, I've published four books at accepting his Asperger tendencies. That's a book that I wrote over, you know, with the, in a, the 10 years that he has, you know, I started writing when he was, you know, maybe two. And so I would just document, you know, the little victories that we had, the struggles that we had, what we did to overcome them, you know, and so I compiled all of this and into one book. And it's basically like my story and uh, the Latino aspect, um, uh, the Latino side of what it's like to have a special needs um, child and have your family you know, accept that diagnosis because in the Latino community, it's not very, mental health is not spoken about. They always brush it under the rug. The rug. They don't really focus on that. You know, they, they just, you know, <laughs> they don't want anybody's dirty laundry out there. And so in their head, you know, um, they, it's not an issue. 
And so I'm a big mental health advocate because of that reason, because just like so many people have said, you know, I was one of those that suffered from depression and anxiety because I didn't know what to do with my son. I didn't know why he was doing this, why he was doing that. Why would he wouldn't talk, why he wouldn't express his needs. And the moment that I changed my mindset to just accepting how he was and trying to lead him in his calling, that's when I actually became of not only a better mother, but a better uh, human. Like I just was, to me, it was like a big kind of like a light bulb moment because it was like, I I get it now. You know, it, it wasn't, I wasn't questioning why me or I wasn't, you know, I changed my mindset from a victim mentality to a victor mentality because I was not asking God, you know, why he did this or why, why, if it was something that I did. You know, and I think also I do want to end with uh, with every parent that that's listening, for, choose to forgive yourself. You know, there's so many mistakes that we do as parents. Make that choice to not only forgive, you know, maybe somebody who did something to you, but choose to forgive yourself because there's there's so many things that you're learning as a parent that mistakes that you do and you know, have a little grace for yourself, just like you have grace for your, for your children and how love you have for them. Choose to have that grace for yourself because there's nothing better than, you know, just knowing that, you know, you have that ultimate peace. And the only way that you can find that, in my opinion, is when you ask God for it. You know, um, peace is something that if you don't have it, definitely look for it because you can't be a, a, a healthy parent for your child if you don't have that peace and you don't hold that peace. And so I just definitely want to leave you guys with that. Um, you know, Learning Idiom is my nonprofit where we teach virtually. I love teaching Spanish. It's I love sharing my culture. It's something I'm very passionate about. Um, you know, we teach cooking and like, you know, dancing and it's just a lot of fun. It's just a lot of fun to share our culture and both in English and in Spanish for people that want to learn. Uh, we teach on Clubhouse and on Zoom. So it's a lot. It's it's a lot of fun. Um, and so just thank you so much, Gigi, for giving me this opportunity. And, you know, I God bless everyone. And I want to give everyone a virtual hug because I am <laughs> I'm a hugger. Um, if, for anybody that doesn't know, if you don't get five hugs every single day, you are, um, that is how you maintain your mental state from, from declining. So make sure you hug the people around you and love them, uh, so at least five hugs a day. So I'm virtually hugging you guys. <laughs> so, uh, thank you so much and, uh, God bless and peace be with you guys. Thank you. Isla. Thank you. You for sharing. Now we'll have um, our last words from our host, Rajalene Gigi Sabat. Wow, absolutely incredible. We heard from amazing speakers from all over the world today. Thank you all. And thank you to our sponsors as well. And thank you all for listening in today. Now, everyone, write this down change begins with you. I'll say it again change begins with you. And I'll say it again change begins with you. As Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change you wish to see in the world. And so it starts with us as expert leaders to really come forward and to express ourselves freely in regards to the facts and to not just raise awareness, but educate others. And that's what each speaker here did tonight. And I truly appreciate each and every one of you. Now, always remember the importance of listening. 
Listening truly matters. In the Bible, it says we have two ears and one mouth. We must always remember to listen first and foremost. Listen, it truly matters. And as Tracy said, we need to continue to show compassion. Compassion truly matters. When we can put ourselves in someone else's shoes, then we can really understand. And you don't really need to physically be in them to understand. All it takes, again, is listening and showing that compassion and understanding. And bullying needs to end. Bullying, I'll say it again, it needs to end in all forms, everywhere. It needs to end. It's not okay. It's not okay. It's in correlation with violence and it needs to end. And now to each an individual's own on what they choose to utilize to help their child or themselves, to each your own. Remember that. And remember that you're not alone. There are so many parents, family members, or an individual who's a caretaker for someone with autism. And I tell you what, you're not alone. If you're listening to this message today, remember to hold on to faith and remember that God is with you. He, if he brought you to it, he will get you through it. And remember to continue to move forward with God first. Keep the faith. And remember, with God, you can overcome all things. Keep the faith. Thank you. And at this time, I'll turn it back over to our Master of Ceremonies, Dr. Lakeisha James, to end us off with a prayer. Father, in the name of Jesus, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Father, for this day that you made, and we're extremely rejoicing that we thank you right now for each and every speaker, Father, that shared their story. In the mighty name of Jesus, Father, we thank you right now. We ask that you touch them right now, Father, whatever they stand in need of, Father. If it's in your will, Father, give that to them. And we know that this journey was not for them, Father. It was meant for someone else. So we thank you right now for them being transparent, Father, and vulnerable on this journey, Father, and being such loving parents to those children and willing to help, Father, all the ones that have this experience of autism, we thank you right now for the power that you've given them in the name of you because power is in their voices, Father. Their story matters, Father. And if they impact one person, Father, they have done their job. So, Father, we thank you right now today for our host, Gigi. We thank you right now for for birth, for giving her that birth, for birthing that inside of her father in the name of you, that she continues to impact father. And all these speakers continue to impact father and share their story because their story does matter. We thank you right now, father, for your word, because your word is true. We give you all the honor. We give you all the praise. We give you all of the glory, father in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone. God bless you and be safe. God bless.